This talk is about living in harmony. And I'm going to use the framework of the five hindrances as a reference point for learning to live in harmony. So I would like to ask you all to close your eyes right now. And imagine being in a field, sitting under a tall white pine tree that has lived at the edge of the forest for over a hundred years. There's a tremendous wind blowing across the field, building up its momentum until it touches the needles of the tree, the delicate long needles that are long and flexible. The needles are hard and firm when feeling just one needle between one's fingers and thumb. Yet when feeling a spray of the needles, they are quite soft and gentle, yet strong. When the wind flows through the branches and sprays of the needle of this tree, even a very powerful wind, there is a suppleness and a resilience to the tree because of its balance of firmness and fluidity. Just imagine the feeling of softness (coughs) as you sit under the tree. This softness of mind means that even with an enormous pressure that the wind may exert, the tree is able to withstand the pressure because of the balance of the qualities of firmness and flexibility. This is the tree's strength, and it's the same with our minds. Our consciousness is constantly coming in contact with sensations at the six sense doors, as you've already heard. Seeing, hearing, (coughs) touching, tasting, smelling, and the mind door by the various gentle or neutral or fierce winds of sensual objects. We are learning to be able to see this contact, these constantly changing objects clearly, open to them and let them go. Instead of being overwhelmed by greed, or blown over by aversion, or clouded over by delusion. This is a fragile, delicate process, and learning one's own inner balance requires tremendous patience and perseverance. And one of the places to learn about this balance is within the five hindrances. The Buddha said that never by hatred is hatred appeased, but it is appeased by kindness. 
This is an eternal truth. The victor breeds hatred and the defeated lies down in misery. One who renounces both victory and defeat is happy and peaceful. The only conquest that brings peace and happiness is self-conquest. What we're all really searching for are peace and happiness. The peace and happiness that comes about through understanding one's own mind. This self-exploration, this self-conquest. As one goes along the path of purifying the mind, one encounters resistances or hindrances This hindrance is an impeding. It impedes an inner harmony. It impedes the ability to see clearly what is happening. So the hindrances can be looked at as obstacles to inner harmony, obstacles to a clear mental vision. Being overwhelmed by what is happening darkens the quality of awareness. This delays our ability to see clearly and delays our own deepening levels of understanding. In order to stop abusing ourselves, in order to stop polluting ourselves, in order to stop polluting the universe, we must first learn to recognize these powerful obstacles to a healthy mind. This is preventative medicine. The two strongest obstacles to a healthy mind are desire and aggression. Their roots are greed and hatred. The other three, which you've already heard of, are sloth and torpor, restlessness and doubt. These are less toxic or less poisonous, and they're offshoots of delusion. These roots of the hindrances of greed, hatred and delusion torture and oppress us, and they exhaust the mind and continually lead us down the path of self-pollution, which only can lead to misery. Rather than down the path that leads to states of happiness and joy, leading to a strong and healthy and balanced mind where wisdom can develop. The most important way to work with being under the influence of these energies or hindrances in the mind is to be mindful of them, to become familiar with them. When the hindrances appear and we have developed a balance of firmness and flexibility, like under the pine tree, these obstacles or hindrances become workable. 
And this is very important. Learning how to make the hindrance work, hindrances workable. In that way, a strong and resilient mind begins to mature. And there is greater and greater happiness. So beginning with sense desire, since we're human beings who live in a sensual plane, and we have these six sense doors, the mind easily becomes seduced by sense objects and continually grasps after objects of pleasure. Moment after moment, with each contact of an object with consciousness, there is a simultaneous pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feeling. This we have no control over. At the moment of hearing, or at the moment of touching, if there is a pleasant feeling at the moment of contact with that object, if there isn't awareness, the mind will go after that object, seeking union with that object because of wanting to hold on to the pleasant feeling. This seeking happiness by holding on to pleasure within sense objects, unfortunately, is a futile search. It just doesn't work. Since every object arises and passes, we are left, if we seek happiness through pleasant sensations, continually searching for another momentary union with one of the sense doors with an object, sights, sounds, smells, tastes, pleasant sensations, or great ideas. And then those pass and we are unfulfilled and unsatiated. The mind can become so enmeshed in seeking happiness through sensual pleasures that it can almost be impossible to appreciate that there is another sort of happiness that is not dependent on sensual pleasures, which will lead to a deeper, fulfilling kind of happiness. The root of this hindrance is greed, and it is the holding on to the objects which strengthens it. An example of this is when we're working with lust. One of the common occurrences of a three-month course is called a Vipassana romance. And to look at that a little more closely, one way to work with that power of attraction, which we're all subject to, is to look at it very closely. 
So say there is somebody here that, that, that one feels an attraction to. And say we're walking through the dining hall and there's contact with the eye door and the visual image of this person. And simultaneously, we have no control over this, there's a pleasant sensation. And it's important to know that we have no control over the pleasant sensation. What we have to be careful of of at that point is to feel the pleasantness and not confuse that pleasantness with holding on to the person's image. It's not the person we want. It's not the object that we want, it's the pleasant feeling. The second obstacle or hindrance is aggression or anger or irritation. And these are all expressions of the condemning mind. Again, at the moment of contact with an object, if an unpleasant feeling arises, if mindfulness isn't present, the mind will have aversion to that object and want to get rid of it. For example, mealtimes in the dining room can be a great place to watch aversion. Perhaps you're sitting at the dining table and rice cakes have been served. And maybe you have, you're looking up at somebody and you, there's contact with the eye door with the person and you don't like the way they're chewing. <laughs> so there's this contact with the object, the eye door, the person chewing. They're seeing consciousness and simultaneously We have no control over it. It's unpleasant. If mindfulness isn't present, then aversion arises to the unpleasant feeling. It's not to the person chewing, it's aversion to the unpleasant feeling. Instead of mindfulness of unpleasantness. And if one is then unmindful of the aversion, Usually we get clobbered by all kinds of condemning thoughts of that person. But really, if we look at it closely, it's just that we don't like the condemning thoughts of that person and the unpleasant feeling. There is a non-acceptance occurring and it is very painful. We can't control the unpleasant feeling to arise Pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral feelings come and go. It is our aversion to the unpleasant feelings, our non-acceptance of unpleasantness that is so painful. I'd like to go into this a little more deeply. One of my favorite sayings of the Buddha is that a thought is just a thought. A feeling is just a feeling, and a sensation is just a sensation. Not my thought, 
not your feeling, not my sensation. When the mindfulness is strong, these thoughts, feelings, and sensations are just like clouds passing through a clear sky. They're absolutely no problem. When the mindfulness is weak, when there is clinging or condemning or identifying with them, then the mind becomes sticky. If you've ever seen flypaper, that is what a sticky mind is like. It's like, if you can imagine that the mind is a bit like film, and say there's a screen up behind me right now, and there's a film projector in the back of the hall, and somebody puts film into the projector, if you look closely at the film, actually what's happening is that each frame is a whole picture. Each frame of the film is a totality in itself. And when we're mindful, when our mind is clear, then each frame of consciousness is clear. It's total. It's in, it's in harmony, and we're in harmony. But when the mind is not mindful, when the attention isn't mindful, we become more and more like flypaper. And each contact that we're not clear about, that we don't see clearly, we just accumulate and accumulate and accumulate, and it gets stickier and stickier, and we're just covered <laughs> with flies, and it's not very pleasant. Um, an example of a sticky mind is if the thought comes through, I am, I am stupid, and one becomes very upset by that thought, that's an example of a sticky mind, because one hasn't seen that it's just like a thought that the grass is green. When the thought the grass is green comes into the mind, usually there won't be a charge, there won't be a reaction, because one sees very clearly that that's just a thought. But if a thought comes through that we grab hold to, that we identify with, it means that there's a stickiness to the mind, and that stickiness is that we believe it, that we don't see it, that it's just a thought, and that it's not mine. One of the benefits of being in a situation with any kind of continuity is that we can explore over and over and over <laughs> again how it is that our own mind state colors how we perceive what is happening. The crux of freedom is realizing that it is not, absolutely not, what is happening that imprisons us. But it's our relationship to what is happening that determines 
our sense of well-being and happiness, About eight years ago, I was doing some practice here during a three-month course. And I naturally started to start sitting for longer periods of time. And I, it, was a, it was during a time when the three-month course wasn't so crowded. There were probably about 40 people here. And I loved to be in the meditation hall when there was nobody else here. So I started um, manipulating my schedule so that I could be in the hall when no one else was here. And I started sitting longer and longer, and I was getting quieter and quieter, and apparently happier and (laughs) happier. And then these two people started copying my schedule. And I was sitting about halfway in the back of the hall, and these two people sat right next to each other up in front. And after about two or three days, they started literally (laughs) following me around. And they sat in here whenever I was in here. And then after about maybe a week and a half, only when no one else was in the hall. It was, there was ne- they only did this when the whole hall was empty, except for me. They started having these laughing fits. <laughs> they were very loud and long and enduring laughing fits. <laughs> and as soon as one of them would just about get it together, you could kind of hear that <laughs> and, and the other one would just start off and, and they would just go, one would, one would just explode and laugh for about, I'm not kidding, <laughs> about 15 minutes. Then, and then they'd just start to quiet down and then, you know, you could feel it, you could feel it kind of squeaking out the ears and the nose and the eyes and then that one would explode and, and it, it would go on for, <laughs> It would go on for anywhere from 45 minutes to an hour. And they would never do this unless it was only me in the hall. (laughs) I had a label. (laughs) I had a label of the Bobsy twins. And after several weeks of this, I slowly, ever so slowly, began to appreciate the range of ways that I would perceive the same sound. It was pretty amazing that the exact same sound, the same situation, over and over, would produce such a wide range of feelings and reactions in me. So sometimes I'd be sitting there, and the sound of the laughter would happen, and it would be incredibly funny. I mean, I would just burst out laughing, and it would be the, it would just be the, I would just be, caught up with the hysteria. And then other times, I'd be sitting there and I would be so angry. (laughs) I would just hate them and I couldn't, and I'd go into the whole story, I can't believe that they've been following me and what right do they have to be doing this and why don't they do this when other people are in the hall and on and on and on. And then other times, it would be totally neutral. 
I would, I'd be very equanimous and it would just be hearing, hearing. And I'd go back to my breath. And the mind would be unshakable. It wouldn't create one little ripple in the mind. It would just be sound coming and going. This was a great teacher for me over those weeks because I could see that it wasn't the sound, it wasn't the laughter, but it was my own mind state that colored how I was going to be perceiving the situation. So from examining sensation in this way, one can begin to be able to see that it's one's own inner differences in perceiving situations that's important, rather than needing to constantly manipulate or control the environment. I'm sure you can think of examples in your own life. A good example is that is when we are living with people, whether somebody we're in a close relationship with, a friend, partner, family. In so many ways, one can see that when one's open and accepting and loving, that one is feeling clear and soft. And that when we become petty, and nitpicking and judgmental. We're very closed and aching and in pain. Again, there's a value, a great value, in being in the same situation with the same people over and over, because we have the chance to see this so clearly. Sometimes it is agonizingly clear. And other times it is joyously clear. So let's go back to the sound of the laughter. If the mindfulness was present at the moment of the sound, if there was a softness and clearness of mind, the sound would just be a sound coming and going. If the sound occurred without mindfulness and an unpleasant feeling arose with the sound, aversion arises. I don't like that sound. If aversion arises to the sound without mindfulness, then there is usually not liking feeling aversion. It's very unpleasant to be not wanting something to be happening. It's called aversion to aversion. Usually at this point, as in my story about the laughter, if there's aversion to the sound and then aversion to the aversion, the whole process becomes more and more solid. There is not just sound, and then it is not just laughter, it is their laughter, and they're disturbing me. And what right do they have to disturb me? And I wish they would go away. And then one can begin to plot how to make them go away. 
or whatever. There's more and more suffering in the mind. It becomes a war. There's violence when we want to get rid of things. It's called self-contamination. All because one doesn't see that it is one's own cloudy mind. It's the mind that is hard and rigid like a thorn that is the problem. It's our inability to open to the unpleasantness, to the not wanting, that is the problem. I could give a lot more examples of this. What is happening when we're doing violence to ourselves and others in this universe is that if we're not mindful when the pleasant feeling arises and we we want to hold it, or when the unpleasant feeling arises and we want to get rid of it, that then a battle begins and the need, <clears throat> the need to defend and protect arises when one doesn't know that it's just a sound arising and passing. We just never know what's going to happen. So we try to protect this phony territory, me, and we become <coughs> more and more miserable. This is being an egoholic. It's being under the dangerous influence of pleasurable and painful feelings and the greed, hatred, and delusion that arises when we're not careful. The most difficult of all possible tasks is to understand one's own mind. This is hard. And it's very inspiring that you're all doing this. This process of mindfulness is a cleansing of the mind and a beautification of the heart. It is an awesome task to develop the clarity of mind, to be able to see thoughts just as thoughts, to be able to feel feelings just as feelings, and sensations just as sensations. To be able to just be with the process and not to have to constantly defend or protect is to take refuge in carefulness and a quiet mind and heart. Happiness and joy arises more and more as one is mindful of what is happening and not a victim of what is happening. The mind becomes soft and subtle. During a three-month course, a momentum can build up. The mind can become more light and buoyant and versatile and pliant. And there's a deeper and deeper happiness that comes from this lightness. One becomes freer from being imprisoned 
from seeking pleasurable objects, from wanting to have a union each moment with a pleasurable object, and from pushing away unpleasant objects. The other three hindrances I'll just go into briefly because they've been spoken about. Sloth and torpor and dullness is when the mind is withered and constricted. One's alertness is almost completely absent or absent. There's a heaviness of mind and sometimes an excessive inclination to sleep. One thing that's important to remember is that human beings all get sleepy. And it's the resistance to the sleepiness that makes it so painful. Sleepiness and restlessness are imbalances of energy and concentration. Restlessness is when we can't stay one-pointed. We become scattered. If the mindfulness isn't present soon enough, the mind becomes agitated and anxious. Memories of the past or thoughts of the future will arise. And it's very easy to get caught in the thinking because there's so much energy in restlessness and not enough concentration. And the fifth hindrance is doubt or indecisiveness. In some ways, it can be the most difficult because if we don't see doubt clearly, it paralyzes us and we're unable to do the practice. It can usually manifest in regard to lack of confidence in oneself. The thoughts such as, I can't do this, or this is too hard, or what am I doing here, are all doubt. Another important aspect of doubt is that it can result from what is called immature wisdom. And immature wisdom is, in, is when we try to figure out the practice, when we, we need to reflect a lot about the practice without enough direct experience. And again, this is a kind of paralysis. And I'll go into how, what the antidotes to this are in a while. All of these obstacles to an inner harmony are impermanent and impersonal mental factors. When one is in an airplane flying through the clouds, or if you're driving through a very thick fog, 
one can't see clearly that the clouds or the fog are just tiny water vapor bubbles. The clouds and fog can seem so thick and heavy and solid and real when we are so immersed in them. When this is happening, the fog or the clouds, we have to acknowledge that we can't see clearly and accept that the cloud and fog or hindrances are there. So first we have to acknowledge that they're there and then we have to be very careful because it is dangerous and easy to hurt oneself and very easy to get lost. So one has to learn to navigate to safety first. It's always amazing to me to fly through the clouds and then into the clear blue sky and sun and to see that the clouds are just one layer of soft vapor, just these little vapor bubbles, nothing lasting or solid about them. And the same is true of the hindrances. The Tibetans liken the mind to a great, clear, cloudless sky and all the sensual objects that arise and pass away are just these tiny little vapor bubbles happening in the vastness of the sky. The mind stays soft and alert and balanced. This is like the vastness of the sky. And as clouds or fog or sun or rain or doubt or restlessness or whatever arise and pass away in the clear sky, if we don't see it that way, there's a war going on. We like the sun. We don't like the rain. We like the small clouds. We don't like the thunderheads or whatever. And there's no peace or happiness or balance. So if the mindfulness is strong, we see the hindrances clearly and there's no problem. But if the mindfulness is weak, we need antidotes. We need to learn how to navigate to safety. As I've said already, it's the recognition that's the most important antidote. Because recognition leads to mindfulness. And the mindfulness is the not clinging and the not condemning and the not identifying. It's at the very moment of mindfulness that makes the hindrances workable. And then they're not hindrances anymore. They're not obstacles.
If they arise and we don't react or identify with them, they pass through without much disturbance. There is this great space in the mind to accommodate them. And in that way, we see each frame of the film, each frame of consciousness clearly. The opposite of this, the opposite of mindfulness, is negligence. So active mindfulness is the preventative medicine to keep the mind strong and resilient. There is one more story that I'd like to relate. I had seen a film um, on the life of Martin Luther King, Jr. And part of the film, he was marching through the streets of Chicago. And after the march through the streets of Chicago, uh, one of a, a journalist interviews him. And so he reflects on the march he led in the heat of the summer. He said it was the worst violence he had ever experienced. That includes all of the protests he had been involved in in the South. He responded to the question about his motivation, why he continued through such violent intensity. And his answer was, all we're doing is bringing the evil out into the open. That's what we're doing. (laughs) All we're doing is bringing the evil out into the open. When we feel immersed in whatever is happening, and it seems so believable and permanent, it probably seems like something's wrong with your practice. Yet the process of learning how to have a balanced mind is one of having a rhythm of quiet, pleasant, comfortable, peaceful, and clear times which makes space in the mind for the hindrances to surface. The process of mindfulness is the process of bringing the evil out into the open. The mindfulness cleanses our perception, which allows for more and more space in the mind. So it's our very willingness to look mindfully and carefully at each frame as much as possible, no matter what is there, no matter how immersed we are, this is what is essential. It's the awareness itself that is purifying.
The Buddha gave specific antidotes to the hindrances for sense desire. He said that what was most helpful for sense desire was concentration, a mind that is secluded. If you think of that, when the mind is secluded, and one isn't going after sensual objects, then the happiness comes from that seclusion. For aversion, he said, the antidote to aversion was a joyful mind and rapture. Hard to believe, huh? (laughs) (laughs) One way to work with aversion, if it's really strong, is to do some metta. or to give a gift. And the third thing is to reflect on the law of karma, which is that all beings are the heirs of their karma. And for the other three hindrances, I'll just do this briefly, because you've heard most of it before. For sloth and torpor, Basically, what's important is to have the mind be fresh and alive and invigorated so that brisk walking or washing your face or opening your eyes or standing can be helpful. And for restlessness, mostly it's important not to try to get microscopic, but to open up your attention, stay with the body sensations, do some hearing for five minutes. The reason for that is if you try to get microscopic through the very unpleasantness of aversion, of the restlessness, one just gets tighter and tighter and tighter until you're not. So it's best to work with that imbalance of energy by not trying to focus through the, through the aversion, but to open up your attention. Stay lightly with body sensations. Touch lightly the breath if you need to. Come back to the body. Go to hearing for five minutes. Come back to the breath rather than try to tighten yourself into a little knot. And for doubt, what's important is to know that the doubting thoughts are just thoughts. But also, what the Buddha said is that it's the direct experience, not blind faith, that is what's important about this practice. So one antidote to doubt is actually investigation, to look more closely, to keep going.
So working with the hindrances is a fragile and subtle process. Learning to recognize them is essential for a quiet and healthy and happy mind. Being familiar with them and not to be fooled or tricked by them, like being in the fog or in the clouds, to give them due respect, being extra careful and guarded when they appear. Mindfulness is the true healer, and it works especially if we don't take ourselves too seriously. If we keep in mind that what we're developing is a mind that is ready for anything, a mind that is strong and flexible. It keeps things in perspective. May all beings develop strong and flexible minds. Are there any questions about bringing the evil out into the open? What is actually happening is a series of mind moments. And so if there's an unpleasant feeling, and if one's mindful of it, usually it won't, and one feels the unpleasantness and one doesn't push it away. It's like it's, you make space for that moment. You open fully to the unpleasantness. It usually won't go into pushing the object away. So then one wouldn't have to be mindful of aversion because it wouldn't appear. But if one misses the unpleasantness, which is a lot of our experience, what, what's really interesting about our lives are that when we start to sit, we see that about 95% of our experience is unacceptable. <laughs> You know, we really like these really pleasant, nice, quiet, peaceful, comfortable. I mean, there's a lot of ifs. If it's, if it's this, if it's that, if it's this, if it's that. It's incredible. I mean, 95% of it isn't okay. And um, that's why it feels like it's bringing the evil out into the open. Because it, it, we get into a situation where there's no distractions and the mind just screams. And to answer your question more fully, there's the unpleasantness. And if we're very clear, we can open to it. And that frame is clean. It's not sticky. 
and we let it go. But if there's the unpleasantness and, and we don't like it and we don't see it, that's, that's the aversion. And then we don't go back to the unpleasant feeling at that moment. We go to the unpleasant feeling of the, the aversion. And the way you can do that is that you can actually feel the body tighten and the feeling of not wanting is predominant at that moment. And then if one opens to that moment, then it might not go into not wanting the aversion. So that's the aversion to the aversion. And you might catch this about 20 mind moments down the road. It might be aversion, aversion, and then uh, why does that person sneeze every time I walk in the hall? And, you know, I wish, I wish they would take some cold tablets and whatever goes through. You might catch it way down the road and then you just kind of go, you just stop. Say, what's going on? And usually it feels like you've pulled a thorn out when you see, oh, oh yeah, aversion. And then the moment you make space for it, it's not aversion anymore. It's just another thing to open to and pass. And the same for pleasant feelings. If, if the clinging is already happening, if you're feeling yourself wanting, it's not necessary to go back to the five moments before. It's to make that wanting the object at that point, because that's what's happening. Is that clear? Okay. You said that the pleasant, the feelings of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral are not in our control. And sometimes to the laughter, you would find it laughter pleasant, the sound pleasant. Mm -hmm. What determines that? It seems that you can alter it when you're mindful enough to the to the sound. It seems it sort of desensitizes you to pleasure, unpleasure. Just makes you neutral. Don't we control it to some extent? The question is about uh, the story I gave about the laughter and how sometimes it appeared to be pleasant and sometimes it was unpleasant and un- sometimes it was neutral even though it was the same sound. Um, in terms of control, what i rather see it in terms of is freedom. So what made the difference in that case, between it being pleasant and unpleasant, was how open and accepting the mind is, or how closed and rigid and hard the mind was. And that's what a lot of what's determining how we're perceiving sensations. The control that we do have is seeing it clearly. And so when I was sitting there, if one mind moment there was the sound and the unpleasant sensation, I didn't really have control over whether the mind was really hard or soft, but I did have the capacity to, to see it clearly and to open to wherever I was in relationship to that. 
So we always have the we always have the ability in any moment to open and see it clearly and to let it go. That's what makes the difference between being in prison and reacting all the time or responding. Responsibility is a nice word because it implies that response rather than the reaction. So the, the, the challenge and the responsibility is to, to have that softness and the clarity. And when we feel closed and hard, the responsibility is to do what one needs to do to become soft. Basically, I'm not sure if you mean if somebody's attacking or if somebody's attacking. If you can keep in mind that the silence and solitude and peace and nonviolence, all those words are kind of quality of heart. And so if it's basically nonviolence in a situation like that, is to see it so clearly that one doesn't have to react. One, one, can still, one can still protect oneself and defend oneself, but it's not out of hatred, but out of love for everybody in the situation. So there's, one has compassion for oneself, one has compassion for the other person, and one knows that what's in harmony is to say, no, don't do that, but you don't have to hate and do it. You can say, no, don't do that, but out of love for the universe. It's being in harmony. So it's very right in many situations to say no. And it's when we say no out of anger, what usually happens is that it just generates more and more defensiveness. And when one says no out of very clear that the situ- that it's wrong and that one just says no, it limits the amount of defensiveness. It might not always 
disengage it because <laughs> there's a lot of um, violent energy. But when in one's own heart, one's acting from a very free, as free a place as one can. Mm-hmm. One more. Pardon? I didn't <laughs> What is it? Sarah, what is it? Basically, we have to learn to know how to balance ourselves and what works. And so, becoming microscopic in one moment might be just what is right. And then, (laughs) five minutes later, it might not be right at all. And it's really learning to not always have to have a formula that's very rigid, but to see what works in a situation. And what work by me, what I mean by works is whatever brings about that sense of seeing it clearly and being able to open. So one, in one situation for restlessness, it might mean that hearing would just be just enough of a balance of staying in touch with sensation, not getting caught in a lot of uh, worry, worrying or anxiety. And that might be perfect. It, it, it might not be getting very microscopic. And then 10 minutes later, there might be enough of a balance of energy and concentration so that becoming microscopic might be just enough to be just what you need. And the same with greed. It, to feel that wanting initially, is to, it's recognizing it. And it might work to just get closer to the sensation using touch points or whatever. And then it might, if that isn't really working, it might mean just feeling the energy of wanting in the whole body and giving oneself a lot of space to feel that. It's an art to learn to balance ourselves. Okay, it's a walking period. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.